0: This podcast series is based on a book called Beyond Reasonable Greed, Why Sustainable Business is a Much Better Idea, by Wayne Visser and Clem Sumter, read by myself, Wayne Visser. A Herd on the Move Moving back to the 1970s, it was thanks to the zealous efforts of the sustainability prophets that a new social phenomenon was born, the Green Movement. It was given a much-needed boost of credibility when the United Nations convened the World Commission on the Environment and Development in Stockholm in 1972 and published its World Conservation Strategy in 1980. Here was a new cause which young idealists and restless activists could get behind. The earth and its most vulnerable citizens needed saving. Throughout the 1970s, the movement was dominated by a wildlife conservation ethic. WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, now called the World Wide Fund for Nature, and Greenpeace embraced different tactics, but essentially the same goal, to prevent the extinction of animals, especially cute and fluffy ones. The world was awash with campaigns, save the whales, save the rhinos, save the seals, and so on. Around the same time, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, was focusing on establishing protected areas, and the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species, or CITES, was trying to tackle the economics of extinction. However, with the spate of industrial accidents in the 1980s, from Bhopal and Love Canal to Chernobyl and Exxon Valdez, the spotlight began to shift from wildlife conservation to industrial pollution. Multinational companies were increasingly portrayed as the new poachers, the stereotypical lion predators. This coincided with the height of the Cold War and growing anti-nuclear sentiments among civil society and environmental activists. Many of the demonstrations that took place were nasty and confrontational but remained isolated enough to be ignored by the broad spectrum of business. So long as environmentalists could be caricatured as irrational, emotional, hippie types, companies figured they could be easily discredited and would eventually go away. It was not until the politicians were enticed into the debate that sustainability became a mainstream concern. This first started to happen in a big way in 1987, with the United Nations World Commission on the Environment and Development issued its Brundtland Report entitled Our Common Future. The report coined sustainable development, defining it as development which meets the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability for future generations to meet their needs. Some characteristics of the elephant are already evident in this definition, including social sensitivity and longer-term thinking. However, the concept was crafted essentially as a political tool, tactfully allaying the fears of powerful business lobbies in the developed countries of the North by not being anti-economic growth, and at the same time soothing the governments and civil organizations in the developing world in the South by talking about development and intergenerational equity. It also befriended and found a guardian for life among the environmental pressure groups by putting their green issues on the world map. Five years later, in 1992, 178 country leaders paraded on the world stage at the United Nations Conference on the Environment and Development in Rio de Janeiro, more familiarly referred to as the Earth Summit. The result was that nations signed up to a variety of conventions, agreements, and programs ranging from climate change and desertification to deforestation and biodiversity, all aimed at making the now politically acceptable notion of sustainable development a reality. The Agenda 21 program represented a synthesis of these commitments and has been a focal point for political action on the environment ever since. The corporate sector is not generally one to be caught napping, and the global gearing up on sustainability issues proved no exception. In 1991, a group of 50 of the world's top executives formed the Business Council for Sustainable Development, the BCSD, and issued its report to the 1992 Earth Summit entitled Changing Course, A Global Business Perspective on Development and the Environment. In a parallel initiative, the International Chamber of Commerce, the ICC, launched its 16-principle Business Charter for Sustainable Development in 1991 and contributed a book to the Earth Summit entitled From Ideas to Action, Business and Sustainable Development. Today there are more than 2,000 corporate signatories of the ICC Charter. Moreover, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development which grew out of a merger between the BCSD and the World Industry Council for the Environment has more than 120 international member companies. Both of these business initiatives accepted the Brundtland definition of sustainable development. However, as the 1990s marched on and companies tried to turn concept into action, It became obvious that the political definition was far too broad and vague to be useful as anything more than a public relations soundbite. If sustainability was going to be taken seriously by the private sector as something requiring implementation, more specific definitions were needed. Finally, by the 1990s, it had become clear that the environmental and social movements were here to stay and getting stronger by the year the last decade of the 20th century saw the green trend being backed by politicians, consumers, religious groups, community organizations, and business. Germany launched its Green Party, the Green Consumer Guide became a bestseller, liberation theology and feminism adopted convenient ecological arguments, and psychology began to explore the notion of deep ecology as a spiritual experience. Improvements in environmental science and legislation helped to give the movement some teeth, while a plethora of internationally negotiated agreements lent the green movement the popular legitimacy required to turn it into a mainstream lobbying group. Ultimately, business had little choice but to clamor on board and nail its green colors to the master's well. Guides to elephant spotting. Following the rise in political and social interest in sustainability, a few leading businesses have begun to question their lion persona and to wonder about the viability of the future as an elephant. Their criticism of the elephant movement, however, has always been that no one seems to agree on what an elephant looks like. In other words, most definitions, such as Bruntland's sustainable development and Elkington's triple bottom line, are too vague to be helpful when it comes to judging whether day-to-day business decisions are leading companies in the right direction or not. For this reason, we are including here what we believe are a few of the more helpful attempts to develop sustainability criteria, guides to elephant spotting, if you like. One of the simplest set of environmental principles which can be applied to business was formulated by Paul Hawken as follows. First, in nature, all waste equals food. In other words, the outputs of every economic or business process should serve as inputs to another process. Ideally, we should not be using materials that cannot be absorbed and used by other economic systems and ultimately by natural systems. Second, nature runs off current solar income. The sun's radiation is the only outside input to our closed earth system. It is the only source of energy that, for all practical purposes, does not run down. Hence, in the long term, the economy should increasingly be fueled by solar energy. Thirdly, nature depends on diversity. The survival of all the earth's living systems, including human society, relies on the existence of biological diversity. Biodiversity performs all of nature's so-called free services and should therefore not be compromised by business activities. Former World Bank economist Herman Daly followed a similar line of thinking arguing that a sustainable society needs to meet three conditions. First, its rates of use of renewable resources should not exceed their rates of regeneration. Second, its rates of use of non-renewable resources should not exceed the rate at which sustainable renewable substitutes are developed. And third, its rates of pollution emission should not exceed the assimilative capacity of the environment. carl Hendrik Robert, to whom we have already alluded, suggests that we go back to scientific fundamentals, such as the fact that nothing disappears and everything disperses, the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Only the sun, via photosynthesis, increases the concentration and structure in matter that is consumed in the process of sustaining life. From these undisputed laws, he then derived the four systems conditions of the natural step, namely that, first, substances from the earth's crust must not systematically increase in nature. This is because these substances, such as heavy metals, in sufficient concentrations are harmful to organic life. And since everything disperses and nothing disappears, sooner or later harmful concentrations will be reached if substances are mined quicker than they can break down in nature. Secondly, substances produced by society must not systematically increase in nature. This is because, once again, these substances, such as persistent chemicals, in sufficient concentrations are harmful to organic life. In many cases, nature cannot break these substances down into harmless components or it cannot do this faster than they are being produced. In a few thousand years' time, genealogists, wanting to find out how we lived, will find a huge quantity of telephone directories and babies' nappies in our rubbish dumps if they ever excavate them. Third the physical basis for the productivity and diversity of nature must not be systematically degraded. This is because life is sustained by a complex web of interdependent species and ecosystems which provide a wide array of free ecological services like water purification, water regulation, waste assimilation, weather regulation, and so on. Most of these services are either too complex or too expensive to replicate. And the fourth condition is that we must be efficient enough to meet basic human needs. This is because humans are part of the environment and a key aspect of sustainability. Resource inefficiency, including inequities in resource distribution, not only obstructs a social system from becoming sustainable, but also tends to compromise other systems as well. You'll notice that, except for the very last point, these three elephant spotting guides pass over the social dimension of sustainability. To a large extent, this reflects the general situation, with much less work having been done on the social sustainability aspects, as it applies to business and the economy, than the ecological aspects. At this stage, we would point mainly to the work of barefoot economist and former business executive at Shell, Manfred Max Neef. Max Neef's framework of fundamental human needs stands, we believe, as the best set of social criteria against which one can measure corporate social performance. Max Neef's model identifies nine fundamental human needs that are common to all people, no matter what their culture or context. These are subsistence, protection, affection, understanding, participation, idleness, creation, identity, and freedom. These needs are not arranged in a simple ladder of priorities. Subsistence is obviously a requirement for human survival, but other than this they can be satisfied in virtually any order or in parallel. Sometimes they enhance one another, other times they are in conflict. Also, although needs are fixed, satisfiers, the way in which people strive to meet those needs, do differ between people, between cultures, between groups. Companies who make their employees work excess of hours should note the inclusion of idleness as a need. Indeed, the challenge for business is to check how its strategic decisions or significant actions affect the fundamental human needs of all its stakeholders in turn. Some pioneering work in this area is being done by the South African chapter of the organization we referred to earlier in this chapter, The Natural Step. The authors of this new elephant-friendly approach, Peter Willis and Diane Salters, are looking to combine aspects of Max Neef's model with the work of philosopher-psychologist Ken Wilber and The Natural Step Framework. Their hope is to produce an integrated tool that business can use to test its overall sustainability, including the social dimension. Footprints of the Elephant If they are handed an elephant spotting guide, the first thing that lion companies ask is, what is the business case for sustainability? That's a bit like asking how the elephant hunts or catches her prey, which of course she doesn't. The whole essence of sustainability is that it is a wider view of business performance, beyond the tempting food of profits and revenue growth and shareholder value. Nevertheless, we have some sympathy with the corner from which the lion companies are coming. And the fact of the matter is that increasingly there is a business case for sustainability, although probably not in as tangible a form as business executives would like. In this part, therefore, we highlight some footprints of the elephant by listing 10 elements of the business case for sustainability. Each of the summarized themes will be picked up again in later parts of the podcast. To the majority of these elements is attached an opportunity cost, meaning that companies which insist on clinging to their old lion ways will incur significant costs and lose ground to the early adopters of them. The 10 elements are as follows. First, sustainability extends stakeholder accountability. Stakeholder groups have become powerful, well-organized agents in society, increasingly backed by the weight of the law, international NGO networks, public support and media interest. Lion companies will waste inordinate amounts of time, energy and money trying to manipulate or fight its stakeholders, while elephant companies will engage constructively with these groups. Second, sustainability raises the bar of legislation. In virtually every country of the world, as well as at an international level, legislation regulating environmental and social impacts is becoming more stringent. Lion companies will find themselves incurring significant fines, penalties and cleanup or compensation orders, as well as being targeted for litigation, while elephant companies will escape these costly outcomes. Third, sustainability introduces new rules of trade. Compliance with internationally recognized social and environmental standards is becoming a prerequisite for engaging in responsible global trade. Despite the counterproductive efforts of the World Trade Organization, elephant-friendly companies and countries will increasingly refuse to trade with predatory companies who do not bear one or more approved marks of the elephant. For example, most large UK retail chains now do spot checks on the working conditions of their overseas suppliers. Fourth, sustainability affects access to finance. Since the financial services sector faces indirect risks from funding or investing in unsustainable companies or projects, banks and insurance companies will increasingly scrutinize their business partners and clients on sustainability criteria. Access to finance by lion companies will become more difficult and expensive, while financiers will actively seek to support elephant companies. Fifth. Sustainability affects costs and liabilities. Dealing with corporate environmental and social impacts or infringements is becoming more expensive, taking the form of taxes, fines, penalties, legal costs, damage claims, cleanup costs, and compensation payments. Ask Exxon, whose Veldes oil spill of Alaska cost them more than $8 billion. By avoiding these costs and identifying savings opportunities through eco efficiency, clean technology, and improved stakeholder relations, elephant companies will become more profitable than their lion counterparts. 6. Sustainability spawns new markets. The switch to a sustainable economy will create new market opportunities in such areas as clean technology, ethical consumer products, ecotourism socio-cultural tourism and professional advisory services. Traditional exploitative markets of lion companies will decline, while elephant companies can invest in the growing markets surrounding sustainability. 7. Sustainability expands corporate governance. All around the world, corporate governance codes which are considered the ground rules for good business practice, are incorporating sustainability principles into the requirements for risk management, ethics, and reporting on non-financial matters. Lion companies will more frequently fail the corporate governance asset test applied by stock exchanges, analysts, and investors, while elephant companies will excel. 8. Sustainability quantifies external impacts. Governments, using a variety of economic instruments such as taxes, subsidies and permits, are gradually forcing companies to reap the full cost or benefit of what they sow in terms of environmental and social impacts. Lion companies will be net payers due to their negative contribution, while elephant companies will be net receivers for their positive contribution. 9. Sustainability Shapes Public Reputation Stakeholder support of companies will to a greater degree be influenced by their public reputation, with unsustainable companies suffering from consumer boycotts, civil lawsuits and disruptive NGO activism. The profitability and share price of lion companies will be directly affected by repeated damage to their reputation, while elephant companies will attract loyal support. 10. Sustainability Influences Investments Sustainability funds, which screen companies before purchasing their shares or investing in their projects, will more and more direct capital towards sustainable economic sectors and businesses. Lion companies will increasingly face questions by their stakeholders about their exclusion from sustainability funds, while elephant companies will obtain financial and reputational rewards from inclusion. Multi-level shape-shifting Business sector readers or listeners will be relieved to hear, and no doubt quick to agree, that the transition to a sustainable world is not solely in the hands of business. After all, business operates within the constraints of prevailing political, social, cultural and economic systems, and many of these systems are still dominated by lion-like tendencies, Not surprisingly, therefore, many corporate elephant wannabes are frustrated by the slow pace of change in their operating environment and the retarding effect that the forces of a lion's universe have on their progress. For this reason, it is essential that shape-shifting towards sustainability occurs simultaneously at various levels within society. Individuals need to shift their attitudes and values Customers must shift their consumption patterns and buying behavior. Economists have to change their market theories. Business schools need to shift their view on what they teach and the importance of ethical topics. Governments must oversee a universal change in the rules of the game, which has as its intended result a level international playing field. In short, multi-level shape-shifting has to occur a lone elephant in a lion park has little chance of survival. Even in an ordinary game park, you only have to look at the bloody lessons of poaching. In one decade, the massacre decade of the 1980s, between 50,000 and 100,000 of the peaceful elephants fell victim to slaughter by human predators. Even elephants, big and strong as they are, need an elephant-friendly environment to survive and thrive. Speaking of which, the most dramatic example of the necessity for multi-level shape-shifting is the HIV-AIDS pandemic in South Africa. No individual actor on the political or economic scene can turn this epidemic around. It will require shape-shifting from a denial mode to a total onslaught mode on the part of all parties at the same time. National and provincial government, local authorities and communities, the private sector, the trade union movement, schools and tertiary institutions, churches, NGOs and other elements of civil society generally, and last but not least, individuals. The holding of hands across all classes and colours of the rainbow, the sharing of the burden to stop the virus spreading, And to help the people who are sick both imply a revolutionary attitudinal change. But it can only be done if you recall the last words of the first chapter, Pragmagic. Handled properly, HIV AIDS could be the catalyst for transforming South Africa into a nation of elephants with a common enemy and a common purpose.